0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, Merry Christmas. It's that time of year. I can say that every Sunday now because we're close enough. So Merry Christmas. Glad that you're worshiping with us. My name is Paul, one of the pastors here at Heritage, and we're grateful to see those of you that are here in the sanctuary. we got some people out there in the overflow. Welcome. And we have people who tune in each week online. It's a privilege to be able to join with you this morning. We are in a series in the book of Hebrews. So if you brought a Bible today, I would encourage you to open up to Hebrews chapter 3. We are calling this sermon series, uh, Greater, True, or Better, as we look at Jesus as the greater, true, or better everything. And that's the, the the sort of the thesis or the the melody of this book, if you will. We come back to that in many different ways as we work through the book. Of Hebrews, the first couple chapters that we just wrapped up today, we're going to get into chapter three, starting in verse one. If you're with us over the last five or six weeks, the argument of the author of Hebrews in, in in chapters one and two is that Jesus is greater than the angels, and in many different ways he pointed to the to the divinity of Jesus and he pointed to the humanity of Jesus and made this argument that Jesus was more uh, was, was greater than angels who were thought to have, uh, and, and really the scripture supports that they mediated the Mosaic law; they were a part of bringing the law. To Moses on Mount Sinai. And so now we get into chapter 3 and the, the, the argument shifts. There's kind of a break in the book structurally going, going between chapter 2 and chapter 3. And now the author is, is focusing on how the ways in which Jesus is, is greater or superior to the Mosaic Law. And over the next several chapters, all the way up uh, clear, clear to chapter 10, the author kind of makes this argument establishing the superiority of Jesus over Moses, which is what our text is about today. And then we talk about how he's, he's greater than the, the priesthood, and then he, he's greater than the old covenant, and his sacrifice is a better sacrifice. And, uh, and then at the end of the chapter, there's kind of this summation of what all that means in the life of the believer, laced throughout Hebrews also, are, are these warning passages there's five of them, and we had one in chapter 2. We're going to get into a warning passage next week. And again, there are these threads that run through this book. And, and it's just awesome to, to, to study that. And, 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 and the more that we read Hebrews and the more that we study this book, the more uh, we, are just, we are caused to, to, to elevate Jesus, uh, to behold him, to fix our eyes on him. And, and in many different ways, this is what the author comes back to again and again and again. And he does so today also. Let's read Hebrews Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence our boasting in our hope. This section begins with the word, therefore, That the, the, the author is saying, in light of what we just learned about Jesus being greater than the angels, and then he, then he addresses his listeners, holy brothers. So therefore, in light of what you know to be true of Jesus so far in my sermonic letter, uh, holy brothers, uh, let me make this, this new argument to you. He's addressing his hearers as holy brothers, These are the people who've been adopted into God's newly redeemed family, and He's been using familial language up to this point. And He's He's saying to them, "You you share in this heavenly this heavenly calling. You've trusted in Jesus." You have this eternal promise. You're the church. And so as as the author of Hebrews was speaking to the believers and the church then, God, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was, was preserving these words for us today. So just as much as the author of Hebrews was speaking to them then, God, by his Spirit, is speaking to us today through these very words. And here's what he's saying. And he's saying it to the church. He's saying it to believers. He's saying this. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, Jesus and Moses were both faithful in their callings. Moses should have been honored as a faithful servant, and the text does that, but Moses is not to be honored above Jesus. Moses is a faithful servant who simply points us to Jesus. When he spoke thousands of years before Jesus, the Gospel of John tells us he was speaking of Jesus. The text today tells us that Jesus is given the title of apostle and high priest, He's the builder of the household of God. He is the faithful son. And he finishes by addressing the church, them then and us today, believers, those who are in Christ, those who are a part of his house. He says, with your eyes fixed on Christ, endure to the end and hold fast with confidence and hope to Jesus. And and if, if I could summarize these six verses in one statement, here's the big idea. This is my sermon in one phrase, Consider Jesus and hold fast to him with confidence and hope. If you're someone who likes to write something down, I would encourage you to write that down. Consider Jesus and hold fast to him with confidence and with hope. Would you pray with me? Father, so grateful to gather here today with these men and women. And God, you know the unique and individual stories and, and pathways and journeys that each person in this room has traveled to this point in time. To, to be here on this day in these appointed moments. And so God, as we, as we turn to your word, God, we are just simply human beings, finite beings with, with finite eyes. And God, we approach this text which points to you, this infinite, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God, would you, by your spirit today, God, would you illuminate the things you need to illuminate? Would Would you reveal yourself to us? God, over the next few moments, would you give us the capacity to consider Jesus? Help us understand that he is worthy of more glory than anything, that we might hold fast with confidence and with hope. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I had just graduated from 8th grade. It was the summer of 1989. Uh, I was 13 years old and uh, I was with my friend Jarrett and we were down at the, the, we call it the river bottom in the Bitterroot Valley. There's this river that runs the whole length of the valley and we would go down there with our bikes and, and as 13 year old 8th grade graduates we were building forts like any normal 13 year old. This was before cell phone, social media, and streaming services. So it was considered pretty edgy to build forts at 14 in, uh, in Montana at my age. And so we were down there as teenagers building forts. When we looked up and we noticed on the gravel bar was this old water and sand, smooth, gray, dead driftwood log. So Jarrett and I made the wise decision to go get on that log, to straddle it, and to ride it down the river. It was, an in, it was a moment of ingenuity and inspiration So straddling this log, scooting it along from the gravel bar into the water, eventually the water got deep enough and our feet began to dangle in the water. Oh, and with shouts of joy dangling our feet in the water, we were brave and free and independent and calling the shots in life. Now you got to recognize, similar to here in Montana, the mountains are very high, and in June time, the rivers have been fed by snowmelt for months and months and months, and so the rivers are swollen, they're raging, they're terrifying, and frankly, they're death traps. So what's wrong with a couple 13-year-olds floating on a log down the river? No big deal. So we start floating down this this river, having a blast for a few minutes, when all of a sudden the river narrowed, the rapids got white. And we realized that we were in deep, deep trouble. And as the, as the rapids got bigger and bigger, I looked up and we, we rounded the corner of the Bitterit River. And there was this bridge that went across the river and smashed up against one of the bridge pilings was this wad of, of tree roots and branches and trees. And it was just this tangled web of death. And we were headed right towards it. And I knew it was awful. Suddenly, all the freedom was gone. I lost all the joy, no sense of independence. I was at the whim of the water. I was terrified. I was holding fast to a dead log that was headed for destruction. It was a hopeless holding fast. It was a fearful holding fast. I had no confidence in that dead object to which I was clinging. Our text today calls us as believers to hold fast to Jesus. The implication is that there are other things to which we can hold fast. He says in verse 6, We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Another translation puts it this way. We are God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. The author comes back to this idea of holding fast and and contemplating Jesus. Uh, At the end of the book in chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. He's not a dead log. He's a living, faithful Lord and Savior. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the big idea. We're going to come back to this a lot. Consider Jesus, church. Hold fast to him with confidence, and with hope. Now, as we get into the text. I want to remind you a little bit of the occasion or what we know to be true of the audience or the recipients of this letter. We've covered this in previous weeks, but it's a good refresher. Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who were in danger of giving up because of difficulty and persecution and pain and discomfort. They were in danger of turning away from uh, their heavenly calling. They were in danger of turning their backs On Jesus. They were dealing with some serious questions about how their newfound faith in Christ melded with the religious traditions within which they were raised. They were dealing with some the the reality, the discouraging reality of ongoing sin in their life. And it was making them ask, is Jesus really sufficient? Is he really the answer to all that ills my life? And it was it was demoralizing, it was backbreaking for this young church. So as we've said in previous weeks, Hebrews was written for one reason, to encourage people, them then, us today, to encourage people, to urge people, do not give up. We're reminded through the author of the book of Hebrews, we're reminded by God himself, this all-important truth, that the absolute perfection and sufficiency of Christ is enough. When this truth is understood, when we embrace this reality of the sufficiency of Jesus, it's all we need. Keeps us walking as God would have us walk. Preserves us through the most difficult of circumstances. And we're reminded to keep our, our hope anchored in the truth of who Jesus is. So, if you're a note taker, you can go on our app. We have a little digital note taking format. A really cool way to keep, keep your notes. You can email it to yourself later. I'd encourage you to do that. Or you can take notes on a piece of paper. Or you can just keep it in your head. But if you're a note taker, here's the first thing I want you to write down. As we look at verses 1 and the first part of verse 2. It's really complex here. Consider Jesus. That's the first thing I want you to write down. Consider Jesus right there in the middle of verse one. We see those two words together. If you're a highlighter, underliner liner, a Bible marker upper, circle or highlight that phrase, consider Jesus. Like I said earlier, this is addressed to holy brothers. This is to holy brothers and sisters. These are people who share in the heavenly calling. This is addressed to believers. It's a calling that comes from heaven by God. It's an also call, a calling that also calls us up to heaven and to God. And the author is saying that as brothers and sisters of Christ, that, that you share in a heavenly calling, you are counted among those who have been called to heaven And this, again, is a theme. There are threads that go through the book of Hebrews. And we've touched on these. the idea of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's greater, true, or better. There are these themes, these threads that run through the whole book of Hebrews. And one of them is this idea of heavenly calling. The, the last verse of chapter 1 talks about how in heaven, us as believers will be ministered to by angels. But then throughout the book, there's this language, the, calling the reader, calling the believer to lift up our eyes and, and consider the heavenly calling that, that awaits us, the promise, the eternal promise of God through his son Jesus. Listen to, to what uh, Thomas Schreiner, a theologian, I, I, I deeply appreciate. He kind of helped me to see this. He's reminding the audience that their, their, their destiny is not con- confined to present earthly realities. Remember, this was a, a group of people suffering and on the verge of giving up. And by this constant calling to heaven, the author is lifting the chin up of his audience, them, then, and us today, to see that there is something bigger going on here. For believers are promised a future reward, according to Hebrews 10, 25. Believers have tasted the heavenly gift, according to Hebrews 6, 4. And the heavens in Hebrews refer to the presence of God, according to chapter 9, verse 23. The heavenly calling for believers is also described as a heavenly city in Hebrews eleven sixteen, uh, which is also called the heavenly Jerusalem in Hebrews 12, 22. The heavenly calling of believers focuses on the future for believers, we read in Hebrews thirteen fourteen. Believers, us today, here today, believers, we seek a city that is to come. There's this heavenly hope that is laced throughout this book. Therefore, as holy brothers and sisters who share in this calling, here's what you're to do. Consider Jesus. Consider him. This isn't a casual or passive considering, like you're considering changing your hairstyle or considering what you might have for dinner or considering what gift to get your spouse. No, this word consider is translated from from a Greek word that means to consider attentively to fix one's eyes or mind upon. The author is saying, as holy brothers and sisters, when together we we, we share this heavenly calling, we are to attentively fix our eyes on Jesus that we might perceive and understand and know him more. Fix your thoughts on God. Take a good, long, hard look, a lasting look at Jesus. Think carefully about Jesus. I heard years ago, I don't know if it was on the radio or something, a, a, a Christian author was speaking about the word muse. To muse, uh, the definition is to become absorbed in thought. And we we are to consider the heavens, we're to muse, We're, we're we're, we're to become absorbed in thought, we're to look attentively, to consider something deliberately and slowly. This is an invitation to muse the things of God, or to muse Jesus. But, you know, if there's someone's a, a theist, they believe in God. If they're an atheist, they don't believe in God. If someone muses things, they think attentively and thoughtfully. If someone is amused, they're just looking for the next thing to distract their mind. We live in a culture that is absolutely obsessed with amusement. Everything about our culture is about amusement. Everything. Everything. The way that Instagram Reels works, the way that the streaming services work, the way that our lives work, the way that movies are made with no scene lasting longer than four seconds before a break. Everything in the world is designed to keep us amused that we might not pause and muse or consider Jesus. This has been the message of Hebrews over and over, just in the first two chapters. It's like, as I was, as I was driving down the hill this morning, getting ready to preach, I was thinking, I've been preaching the same thing since I started the series. Um, Paul, you've got to have something interesting to say. You've got to have something engaging and funny and thought-provoking and relevant and applicable to say. You've got to be engaging and dynamic in your communication style. You don't want people to be bored with what you're, what you're going to say. And I realized, what a, get that awful thought out of my mind. There's a reason why God inspired the author of Hebrews to tell us verse after verse, chapter after chapter, to consider him. There's a reason why, because we don't in our nature. And so he's writing this because it's, it's for us today. God, as I speak these words over our congregation and over my life, there's a reason why it keeps coming up again and again and again, because this is what God wants of us. The first three verses of, of Hebrews are filled with this, this exalted vision of Jesus. He, he is the final and definitive word from God. He, he is the, the one through whom all things have been made. He's the creator of the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature and so on and so forth. And then as we work just through the first two chapters, we're to behold Jesus who is higher than the angels. Chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to this truth. Chapter 2, verse 9, we we are to see him, Jesus, crowned in glory and honor. Chapter 2, verse 10, trust in his pioneering work as he takes the lead out in front of us. And today we're or to consider him. It's just another prompt to fix our eyes on Jesus. It may be, may be tempting to even think of this as something that, that only unbelievers are to do. Someone who's seeking God, only, a, it's only someone who's seeking to, 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 to know the truth, only they're the ones who are to consider Jesus. But to consider Jesus, for you and me to fix our thoughts on him, to think carefully about him, to, to attentively fix our eyes on him, this is the ongoing call of the Christian life. This is the ongoing call for you and me seeking to know him and pursue him and be molded and shaped and formed into his image. I think of what Paul writes in Philippians 3:14. He says, "Press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." I think of what the author says in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2, "Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith." Failure to do so, we've been warned, will lead us into spiritual drift. Remember chapter 2 verse 1? We must pay much closer attention To what we have heard, the gospel, lest we drift away from it. So, to consider Jesus is to pay much closer attention to what we've heard. It's a daily thing, it's a discipline, it's a practice in the life of the believer. That's what Sunday worship is for, by the way, this weekly gathering of the saints. It's an opportunity for us as the body of Christ, saints and seekers alike, to come and gather in one place so that collectively or corporately we can consider. Jesus, that's what we're doing right now. When we gather as the body of Christ in huddle groups or men's groups or women's groups or Mighty Oaks or any of the things, or if you just grab lunch with a brother or a sister in Christ or invite a believing family over and you fellowship about the things of God, what we're doing in those environments, in a smaller environment, is we are spurring one another on that we may together in intimacy and within the context of relationship, consider Jesus. And when we engage in personal disciplines, when we get up and and we crack open the scriptures with a cup of coffee in the morning, or before we go to bed we crack open the scriptures and we meet and we seek to read God's word, we are setting aside time in the word of God to daily consider Jesus. When we prioritize prayer as a believer, when we we set aside time and, and moments in our life where we are intentionally praying, we are considering Jesus through conversation with him. And when we seek out solitude and disciplines of abstinence, we are seeking to set apart time, set aside time to consider Jesus without distraction. This is, this is the ongoing call of the Christian life. You know, when I first moved here, I was in a city in Milwaukee, as most of you know, and it was a very busy life. It was a, uh, the, 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 a Sunday at my former church would involve preaching four times in three different locations. So I would spend my Sundays driving across the city of Milwaukee, preaching in different contexts. It was a dead sprint all the time, always. And so when we got ready to move here, uh, as I met with the elders at Heritage and was trying to figure out what my weekly schedule would look like, they gave me the permission to, to start my work day on Wednesday later. So that I could take Wednesday mornings and just have a morning until noon where I could just go consider Jesus. And I could find those places and those opportunities. For me, it's solitude, it's mountains, it's hiking, where I could just intentionally set aside time. And for a while, I slayed. It was awesome. I was in the mountains. I couldn't believe it. So any opportunity I had to go for a hike, I did. And I had just incredible times with the Lord. But you know how it is. I've discovered in my life, if I'm not constantly keeping my eye on the, the, the need for Sabbath, if I'm not constantly keeping my eye on the need for solitude, I always fill it with stuff because we live in a culture that's obsessed with doing stuff. And so, if I'm honest, the Wednesday mornings with Jesus kind of just went away. And then last week, I had a free Wednesday. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to go up to Mount Ashland with my snowshoes, and I'm going to spend a couple hours just considering Jesus. And I did. Drove up there, saw the sunrise up there. It was incredible. Snowshooter on the backside of the mountain, went up on the ridgeline, looked down at the Rogue Valley, looked down at Mount Shasta, and I considered Jesus for a couple hours. It was life. It was life. I have a friend who who wrote a book called Long Wandering Prayer, and he talks about how when you go to pray, and you have your prayer list, and, and you try to work through the prayer list, but your mind gets distracted, and you rebuke yourself, and you come back to the prayer list, he's like, maybe... The prayer list is trying to control the prayer time. Maybe when we walk and pray with Jesus, maybe we should just let God direct our thoughts. So if I'm on the prayer list, if I'm on item number four of a 14-list item, and my mind goes somewhere else, maybe that's the Spirit of God leading my mind to pray for something else He wants me to pray for, and I shouldn't be controlling this moment. And so I wandered, and I prayed. And like the true feeler that I am, I cried. (laughs) I walked by some lady. I'm like... Hi. Wiping the tears off my face. I thought, why don't I do this more often? It was just life for me. Considering Jesus without distraction. I was talking to Jeremy and Patricio on Thursday as I was working through my, my notes with them. And, and Patricio, he's in LEAD, and LEAD is this cohort of men that are journeying together for a year here at Heritage to grow in Christ and, and discern their calling. And a big part of LEAD that Mike Robinson's helped with is theology. We're trying to, to, to teach men to think theologically. And, and so Patricio's sitting there as we're talking about considering Jesus. He's like, is considering Jesus, is that just like a practice of just practicing theology? I was like, yeah, I th- Yes, if theology is knowing God, if considering Jesus by the direction of his word, yes, it's theology, but we realize that word has gotten so mystified in our minds. We think sometimes that theology is this academic endeavor for the religiously elite. It's not. Anytime we come and we sit under teaching or we crack open the word or we think about God, we're practicing and engaging in theology, the question is, is it good theology or is it bad theology? And we don't need to be afraid by that word or afraid of what it means to pursue God. We need to endeavor to know him. Consider Jesus. And after calling us to consider Jesus in the second part of verse 2, Jesus is given two titles, apostle and high priest. Jesus is the apostle of our confession. In the most basic term, the word apostle means uh, sent. One who is sent. A messenger from heaven. So Jesus is the apostle. You can say that Jesus is God's apostle from heaven. Earthly apostles were sent out to represent Jesus to the nations. Christ was sent to earth to represent God to earth. He's also called the high priest of our confession. We've been unpacking what that means, and we will spend chapters looking at what it means that Jesus is our high priest. Kathy Johnson, in our, in our study this last thir- uh, Tuesday, she, she, we were talking about the unique nature of the word apostle and high priest. And Jesus fulfills both. An apostle speaks to us, representing the holiness of God to people. And a priest speaks for us to God as a mediator. So Jesus represents both of those. He is both God. He is, like it says in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by his son, but in these last days he speaks to us by his son. Jesus is the, is the message of God spoken to us. But as our high priest, he also mediates for us and he intercedes to God on our behalf. What a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. Consider him. He's greater. He's truer. He's better. Second thing I would encourage you to write down is count Jesus worthy of more glory than Moses. We see this in verses 2b through through the first part of 6a. Count Jesus as worthy of more glory than Moses. Look at verse 3 we read that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now remember that this was a, a letter that was written to Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, and in their mind, Moses was king. He was huge. It was like Abraham, Moses, and David were the big ones. And, and if you look through the book of Hebrews, like Jeremy was saying last week, one at a time, the author is helping his reader to understand that Jesus is so much greater than these giant figures in the history of Israel. If you read text. In no way is the author diminishing Moses at all. Moses was a faithful servant in the house of God, it says. That's a quote from Numbers chapter 12, where God speaks very highly of Moses. Moses was a -a one-of-a-kind servant for the Lord. What's interesting is, as I learned this week, as I was studying this passage, there's been an interesting thing in, in Bible translation. The word, when we see servant in the New Testament, almost always it's the word doulos. Which, which a much better interpretation of that word is slave. But for, for, for obvious reasons, the word slave has a lot of negative connotation within our culture. So Bible translation committees have gotten away from using the word slave in our modern English translation. So they use the word servant, doulos. But when we get to this word here, for Moses, it is not the word doulos. It's the word theropom. And it's the only time it is used in all of the New Testament. The only time. It's a a word that was used in the New Testament to specifically refer to the way in which Moses served God. It's one of the highest honors given in Scripture to a mortal. And as highly as Moses is lifted up in this passage, Jesus is exalted all the more. This was the same tactic when he talked about angels. Angels were lifted up in the first two chapters, but Jesus is so much greater than angels, he's so much greater than Moses. He has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, has much more glory than the builder of the house, has more honor than the house itself. I read this week that despite Moses' great faithfulness in following God's redemptive plan in the Exodus and in recording the law, Jesus is superior, and he's worthy of more glory. We don't use that word glory a ton. I think about it almost exclusively in terms of athletics. remember that song, Glory Days. I've been, a, I've been a fan of mixed martial arts for a very long time, and I know it's got some, it's got some bad press, uh, but I've been, I grew up uh, in the 80s in a boxing era where there was Hagler and Hearns and, and these incredible fighters, but then there was Mike Tyson. So I grew up in the Mike Tyson era, obsessed with Mike Tyson. I loved boxing when I was younger. And then when the UFC came around, when it became the sport that was being regulated by state athletic commissions, and it, it wasn't a blood sport, but it was highly trained professional athletes who were, that were engaging in martial arts, I became a huge fan of this sport. Watched it all the time. And when I moved to Milwaukee, my family and I in 2012, we planted our church right down the road from one of the most well-known MMA gyms in the, in the world. It's called Rufus Sport. So, so, so art, martial artists from all over the planet moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin to train with Duke Rufus at Rufus Sport Gym. Duke Rufus was a multi-time world kickboxing champion. And so I was upset. I was like, sweet, I'm, I'm down the road from where all these world champions train, and, and, and on, uh, a week before we, we had the first service of our church, I met this guy named Michael at a street fair. We, we sparked up a conversation. He trains at Rufus Sport. He was the first real MMA fighter I ever met, and I was kind of enamored by it. Like, oh, this dude's like a fighter. He was an amateur. He was fighting in the amateur ranks, but he was training, and he was doing the work, and I was impressed. Uh, I'd never met a real mixed martial artist. I'd only seen them on TV, and, and uh, even though he was just competing as an amateur... I was enamored by Michael, and we sparked up a friendship that lasted quite a while. I think about the amount of skill and courage and resolve it takes to climb into a, a ring or a cage and stand across from someone else and, 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 and see if you can best them. But that's what, the, that's what Michael was engaging in. And in my book, because I'm a big fan of the sport, Michael was deserving of glory. Well, then my church established, and it grew. And pretty soon, all these fighters started showing up in my my church. These guys, just well-known martial artists from all over the world and all different ranks. And, And then one day I was standing in the lobby and I'm shaking hands and, you know, Mike and I are still friends at this point but I'm standing in the lobby one day and I'm shaking hands and in walks someone and immediately I recognize this person not because I've met him before just because I'd watched them on pay-per-views and on the UFC fight all over the world. It was Tyron Woodley. He was the reigning world ultraweight champion at at that point. He was a 185-pound world champion just a beast and he walks into my church and I start wondering about that passage in James about the sin of favoritism and I'm like God am I committing the sin of favoritism if I get his autograph and take a selfie? Yes I am. So I shake Tyron's hand. He ended up working with, with us off and on for a while. Uh, 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 good dude. And as much glory as Michael deserved for his willingness to train and discipline himself and compete as an amateur martial artist, how much more worthy of glory is Tyron? Two-time All-American at Missouri as a wrestler, the best welterweight on the planet, world-class athlete in every regard. And no way did I ever look at Michael and denigrate Michael. He was a I, I, I appreciated his efforts. I appreciated his accomplishments. But I simply recognized how much more worthy of recognition and honor and glory is Tyron. He was a much greater fighter. His efforts and his accomplishments had accomplished so much more. Here's the idea. Jesus has been counted as worthy of more glory than Moses. For as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God. Jesus is the builder of the house. Moses is the house. As the house, Moses is a part of the body, the people of God, the household of God. Jesus built God's household. Moses served God's household. And by the way, this is another allusion to Jesus as creator. Premise one, Jesus built the house. Premise two, God builds all things. Conclusion, Jesus is God, creator God. This is one of the themes we see throughout Hebrews as well. Chapter 1, verse 2, we read that it was through Jesus that God created the world. So the created can never be greater than the creator. The reasoning is very simple here. Angels were created by God as servants of creator God. Moses was created by God as a servant of creator God. Jesus is greater. Christ, as the son of God and as creator, is worthy of more glory than angels, of more glory than Moses. Moses is a faithful servant. Jesus is a faithful son. As a son... By inheritance, Jesus is the heir. The son, Jesus, owns the house. The son, Jesus, is Lord over the house. The son, Jesus, provides out of his wealth for those within the house. As a servant, Moses doesn't own the house. Jesus does. As a servant, Jesus, Mo, as, as a servant, Jesus doesn't own the house, but, but, but Jesus does. As a servant, Jesus is Lord, but Moses is servant, and he serves the master or the Lord. As a son, Jesus provides out of his wealth, but the servant doesn't provide. In fact, the servant depends on the riches of the son. The servant partakes in the blessings of the inheritance. And so there's this this ongoing argument, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, that was really pertinent to that first century audience, that Jewish audience. We're probably not wrestling in here with wanting to give Moses more glory than Jesus, because that's not our religious context or our cultural background. But you get the idea. Kathy, in our study on Tuesday, she she said, Moses was a man of God. Jesus is God himself. God spoke through Moses. Jesus is the very word. Moses carried out priestly function. Jesus is the great high priest. So here's where the author's taken us today. He's imploring his readers, us today, consider Jesus. Hold fast to him with confidence and hope. That's what he's telling us. Consider Jesus and hold fast to him with confidence, and with hope. Which takes us to our final point. Confidently hold fast to Jesus. Confidently hold fast to Jesus. Look at verse 6. Look at that phrase, hold fast. Again, if you're a a Bible marker upper -er, circle that, highlight it, point an arrow to it. The indicative in these six verses is to hold fast. I mean, it's to consider Jesus and hold fast. It's, it's, it's sandwiched with two indicatives, but the, the, the primary indicative, the primary thing the author wants us to do is hold fast to Jesus because Jesus is the very Son of God. He's the builder of the house. He's deserving of more glory and so on and so forth. So, which leads to this imperative, right? The first imperative is to consider him. So the author tells the audience, consider him, look intently at him, fix your thoughts on him, think carefully about him, recognize how worthy of glory he is, more glory than anyone else, and as you behold his worthiness, as you behold his glory, his, his superiority, that then informs your holding fast to him with confidence and hope. The, the considering Jesus precedes the holding fast to Jesus. We consider his person and his work, and in light of who he is and what he does, we cling to him, we hold fast to him. That's what the author is saying. It's no longer a discussion about Moses and Jesus here at the end of verse 6. Moses is talking to the church. He uses the word we. He's addressing the church specifically. We are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. He He includes himself, the author. He's speaking to the church to which he is a part. And it's both to the first century church and the 21st century church. We, Heritage Christian Fellowship, are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The evidence that you are a part of the heavenly calling is that you're a part of the house of God. You're counted among the saints. You're part of the fellowship of believers. And so the question becomes, and this is, the text can get a little bit challenging here. What makes makes you one who is in his house? According to this passage, what makes you and me men and women who are of his house? Well, you're holding fast. That's what makes you one who's of his house. And that word if looms large. Peter, in our small group on Thursdays, we took a look at this passage. Peter, do you remember? I got done. We got done studying the passage for an hour and 15 minutes. And I said, okay, guys, any last thought before we go out of here? And Peter's like, I don't like that word if. And we are his house if. Indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Again, as I wrestled with that word if, Jeremy and I talked about it. There's debate on how to interpret this passage, what theological lens through which you view this passage. But listen, let's just look at what the text says. Again, Thomas Schreiner helped my thinking here this last week. Here's what the word if means. If the readers endure to the end, they are God's house. That's the argument. The author is not attempting to affirm that if they endure, they already belong to God's house. He's also not saying that's not true. Nor is the author making the claim that if they endure to the end, they will be his house. We want to add those theological distinctives when we come to this passage. That's not what the author is doing here. As as Schreiner says, the author's point here is he's being pastoral. He's neither contemplating whether or not the readers are already Christians. That's not what he's concerning himself with in in this imperative. He's saying the readers must persevere to belong to the house of God. Remember, this was written to a group of Christians who are on the verge of giving up. They're on the verge of walking away, of becoming apostate, of turning their back on Jesus. As we read through these five warnings throughout the book of Hebrews, we're going to hear strong and difficult language about the consequences of not persevering, but of walking away. Here's what Schreiner concludes with. He says the conditional here should be interpreted in the same way as all the other conditionals in Hebrews. If the readers persevere to the end, they belong to God's house. that's how we're to read this text. So Christian, application is pretty, pretty clear here today. Hold fast. Persevere to the end. There's nothing else to hold fast to. It's all dead stuff. It's easy to mess that up, isn't it? We said a few weeks ago that when we make good things, ultimate things, bad things happen, that's called idolatry. And sometimes we give more glory to to good things, and in so doing, we turn away from the ultimate thing. I was reminded this week of that final scene, or one of the final scenes in, I think it's Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail, the one with Sean Connery. And they're like in this cave or something, and there's this earthquake, and of course, like every Indiana Jones movie, a crevasse opens up. And there's this woman who who Indy has sort of affinity for, and, and, and the Holy Grail falls down, this prized, coveted artifact falls down, and it's resting on a ledge. And this woman falls in this crack, and, and Indy grabs her hand, and she's hanging, and she's grabbing on Indy's hand. And, and he is the one to whom her salvation is anchored. All she has to do is hold fast to the one to whom her salvation is anchored, and then she looks over here and she sees the Holy Grail. Remember the scene? And she, she wants both. And Indy's imploring her, hold fast! And what does she do? She reaches and reaches and reaches and falls to her death. That's the picture here. That's the picture of the warning passages in Hebrews that we'll get into in coming weeks. We let go of the ultimate one to reach out for dead things. How foolish. And if the author of Hebrews was to look at the hearts and minds of the men and women of Heritage Christian Fellowship today, and if he were to write the letter to us in our context, since we're not clinging to Moses, what might he say? What might the Spirit of God be saying to you this morning through conviction as you consider what it means for you to hold fast? He might say, consider Jesus as worthy of more glory than meeting and spending the rest of your life with the person of your dreams. He might say, consider Jesus as worthy of more glory than the dream of parenthood. Good things, not ultimate things. He might say, consider Jesus as worthy of more glory than a successful and satisfying career through which you're revered. He might say that consider Jesus as worthy of more glory than the people whom you share a home with. Your spouse and your kids and your parents. Good things, not ultimate things. He might say to those of us in ministry, consider Jesus as more worthy than the reputation you hold as a minister or the work you do in your ministry. He might say to us, consider Jesus as worthy of more glory than the obsessiveness with which you care for, your, for the way in which you are perceived by others. He might say to those of us today in this room, consider Jesus as worthy of more glory than the platform of your preferred political party. There's nothing else to hold fast to, folks. Nothing. Consider this. Contemplate this. Meditate upon this. Muse upon Jesus. And the more you spend time considering Jesus, the more you will see his worthiness, which will rightly inform how you hold fast to him. There's nothing else to hold fast to. I think sometimes, even in Christian circles, we get this mixed up up a little bit. I think about me being in ministry and I gathered with a bunch of men yesterday and we talked about ministry and it was awesome and I was like what might and I've been you know I've planted churches and I've worked at churches and what might what might Jesus be saying to me or to those of us that are just that are all in that are all in, and we are 100% committed to gospel proclamation, to, to serving the church, to being used of God. How might we get distracted? How might we end up reaching for something else other than Jesus? And I thought, well, if, if the author was going to write to us that are in that camp, maybe he would say, consider Jesus as worthy of more glory than Heritage Christian Fellowship. Consider Jesus as worthy of more glory than your pastor, your favorite spiritual figure, author, speaker, influencer. He might say, consider Jesus as worthy of more glory than that pet doctrine that you love to talk about and come back to all the time. He might say, consider Jesus as worthy of more honor than that theological conviction and the theological camp within which you are firmly planted. There's nothing else to hold fast to. We don't hold fast to ideas. We hold fast to a person. There's nothing else that we can hold fast to with eternal confidence, nothing. Nothing. If you were to take, I heard a friend Jeff this week with, told me this story about another pastor who was counseled by someone when he was going through a hard time to write down everything that's important in his life. Everything. Filled pages. And now systematically go through and remove everything that can be taken away. And you know what he was left with? Jesus. Nothing more. There's nothing else worth boasting. So consider Jesus. Hold fast to him. With confidence. And with hope. So I go back to that that day, that warm June day on the Bitterroot River, and I, I see myself clinging to that hunk of dead tree with troubled waters rushing all around me and beneath me. And I see myself there as a 13 year old holding tight to something dead that had no capacity or no concern to save me. It was hopeless. And as I've shared in the past, I'll share again, my mind flashes to another memory of the Bitterroot River upon which I grew up, and it's of my dad. And my dad and I trapped on the Bitterroot River and we got to our trapping grounds by wading across that very river to the fertile trapping grounds that weren't reached by bridges. And uh, the river was raging and my dad was powerful and he had hip waders and I would hop on my dad's back and he would carry me across that river week in and week out for years. And And I see myself on the back of my father holding tight to someone, not something, someone, living and loving Someone powerful and present. The one to whom I held was deeply concerned with my well-being. And so with confidence and hope, and even boasting in my dad's strength, I clung to his shoulders. I would not have clung to a stranger as I clung to my father. It was through the thousands of acts of selfless sacrifice and provision that I had benefited from in my childhood, that I observed the character of my father, that I learned to develop confidence in who he was. Which informed my holding fast to him. It was the faithful ways in which he cared for me in the past that informed my trust in the presence. By the way, that is such an important reason for solitude and for Sabbath, for it's only in solitude and Sabbath that we pause long enough to consider the faithfulness of God. Do you remember the Father in Genesis? Remember what he does when he looks back at creation, he looks at what he did and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good boy, we need to remind ourselves of the goodness and the very goodness of God because that reflection on his faithfulness yesterday informs my trust in him today. So, church, with humility in my heart and a deep desire for your godliness, let me ask you a question. To what or to whom are you holding fast? As you reflect on your life this morning, might you find that you are clinging to something dead that cannot save you? A relationship, ideas about God, the American dream, religion, the hope for comfort, the hope for retirement, a fantasy. When we proactively consider Jesus, when we focus on the millions and thousands of ways he is for us, when we see him and know him and enjoy relationship with him, when we consider him, our confidence in him grows and you come to have ultimate confidence in whom you hold fast because you know him intimately. You trust he'll protect you. You trust in his strength and your vision of him grows bigger and bigger as you learn to rest in his power and not your own. You realize he has your best interest in mind so you learn to confidently, with hope, and with boasting for him on your lips as he carries you through the troubled waters you cling tightly and you'll hold fast. So church, Consider Jesus. Hold fast to him with confidence and hope. You don't need fancy words from me. We need the word that God has given us through the author of Hebrews by inspiration of his spirit. That's what we need today. And in fact, the, the imperative to consider Jesus is sort of antagonistic to what's happening right here. Because I've been feeling space with words for 45 minutes. It's hard to consider Jesus when you're just listening and listening. So What would it look like for you and for me as a discipline in our lives to carve out time away from distraction to consider Jesus? As lame as it sounds, what would it look like for you to have a coffee date with Jesus in a significant swath of time on a regular basis in your schedule? What if it would look like for you to take out your phone today, your calendar app, and begin to block time, real time, in your life? No radio, no amusement, just you and Jesus. What would it look like? How might that change the way in which your spiritual life take shape how might it change the way in which you you elect to hold fast to him let's pray father i'm i'm so grateful for this this exhortation this morning this encouragement for us as as believers and even for the unbelievers who are among us today to 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 see the worthiness jesus the worthiness to be held fast to there's nothing else to hold fast to. Everything else is dead or will die. So God, I pray that today as we, as, we, as we consider our life in this moment, as we reflect upon what we might be holding fast to, that is not you, God. but you, by your spirit, bring an appropriate conviction, not shame. Shame has no place in this equation, but appropriate conviction of sin. God, and I pray that your spirit would allow that conviction to manifest in a confession of sin and repentance, turning our face to you, God, Help us, God, help us by your Spirit. Help us to hold fast to you. Help us to get the distractions out of our mind and to regularly and faithfully and consistently consider Jesus. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.